1: We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey.
2: This vaccine will help us get
1: past this pandemic once and for all.
0: We need people to have faith that this vaccine is
3: safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh,
2: I'm not so sure.
3: Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepke.
2: Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. Now Boris Johnson's government sets out its agenda for the parliamentary year today, included our plans to reform state aid and government procurement rules and more on that levelling up agenda, all in a speech read out by Her Majesty the Queen.
3: Now, the controversial policing bill, which has led to several protests, is also getting a mention. But there are concerns that mandatory photo ID for voting could marginalise people without a passport or driving licence. Shadow Foreign Secretary Lisa Nandy is worried. I just think it's really bizarre coming from this government that they've made it so much more difficult for people in this country to vote over recent years. But they've taken absolutely no action to defend our democracy from attacks overseas. Well, the government is proposing at least 25 bills you in for parliamentary debate, which could all get through, given the size of Boris Johnson's majority.
2: Well, let's bring in our guests. i are very pleased to welcome former Conservative Party leader and MP for Chingford and Woodford Green, Sir Ian Duncan-Smith. Now, Sir Ian, uh, congratulations on what were a pretty good set of results for the Tories in the local elections. Why did Labour do so badly?
1: Well, I think there are a number of issues at stake here that uh, that... Came out, And you'll see that uh, whilst the, the Conservatives did uh, very well, far better than would normally have been the case, because we were defending pretty high seat numbers, uh, council seats, etc. So normally under the process of pendulum swinging, we've seen us losing a number of seats. In fact, we, we gained significantly and also gained in the by-election. Um, but there are a number of areas. One is that I think many of these areas that have been historically... Labour areas that we won back, including Hartlepool, but also councils and council seats. I think what's happened over a period of time is they felt that the Labour Party, who have basically taken them for granted because they used to have such big majorities, they've not seen what they think was necessary to them, a revitalisation, an improvement in their lives, an end to the desperate need for uh, their children to head south. Uh, to other areas to find jobs and to uh, and to improve the quality of their lives, and so what they want to do is they want that to change. And Brexit for many of them meant change, and the party that's representing that change through Brexit uh, through the Brexit process and beyond into build back better and to levelling up and improvement in infrastructure, etc. At the moment, seems to be the Conservatives. So I think that was the main reason why there were. Split bits on on remain and leave. Some of the more heavily remain areas retained uh, Labour mayors etc. But uh, there's a huge amount more than just Brexit. It was hugely to do with the change in their lives.
3: Mm. Do you worry at all? I mean, we're talking about the backdrop to to the Queen's speech and and the government's agenda this year. Do you worry about the fracturing of of perhaps the Conservative coalition in in the future? I mean, middle class constituents in in Mm. London, in the home counties, do they have much in common with um, new Tory voters in former Labour seats in the North of England?
1: Well, I I think they do. Uh, Sometimes they don't realise it, but they do. The key problem that the UK faces taking a pace away from Brexit, but just looking at the UK, this is the reality, which is that everyone always talks about the UK having a productivity problem. The truth is that's not the case. London and the South East have the highest productivity in Europe. Uh, The reality is once you get past London and the South East, every other region in the UK does not have, does not reach the average for the UK. So you can see, number one, the dominance uh, of London and the Southeast economically on the rest of England particularly, less so uh, in places like Scotland, but certainly in England. What you then begin to see is that actually this is a problem because um, we've become very London, Southeast centric. uh, And and a lot of that money, that investment and that uh, enterprise has had to go to London and the South East to generate its own change and to improve. What we need to recognise is we have to spread that back up. And so there is huge commonality, but it's a recognition that we can't go on just letting uh, London and the South East dominate. We need to spread that uh, that uh, economic improvement up to other areas, It means investing dramatically in areas like infrastructure, not just physical infrastructure, but uh, in communications. And in also in education and improvement in skills and training, all that's got to take place urgently if we're to make these other areas of the of England particularly much more viable and interesting for investors coming into the UK and investors from the UK looking for places that are a better environment.
2: I want to ask you about that uh, dramatic investment, as you put it. That will require uh, a continued uh, deficit, an enormous deficit, very high levels of public spending. Uh, are you and your local Conservative members uh, in Chingford comfortable with that With that agenda?
1: Well, uh, it's, it's always taken that this must mean government spending, but actually it's hugely about leverage spending. So, if, for example, uh, I've just put a report through to the government, which hasn't been published yet, on regulation and deregulation post-Brexit. And the point we make in this, uh, is, not to give away too much of what's in it, but the point we make is that um, actually a change to the way we regulate, to the static, heavily coded process that is the European Union's concept of law, the more English common law process, allows and will allow a lot of that private sector money uh, to be able to be invested into these areas uh, because now that risk versus reward process is is, a, is open to us as a country, whereas it's been stultified, really, in many senses, uh, within our membership of the European Union. So there are lots of areas which we can incentivise huge amounts of private sector money uh, right the way through those investment programmes that can actually now re itself on change in these areas. And I think that's the key. It's not just government money. Government money can... Yeah. Often act as seed corn, but it's it's the key is to get private enterprise seeing these areas as viable and investing
4: in them.
3: But, but is this idea, I mean, forgive me, but is this idea of leverage spending not simply the sort of next PPR disaster for the government? I mean, there is a possibility that the government doesn't come out as well uh, of these business deals as business does. And it also opens up sort of the possibility for sort of cronyism of which the Tory government's already been accused.
1: No, I, I reject all of that because it shows a misunderstanding, to be quite frank about what we mean by private capital coming in. Private capital needs to go to areas uh, where it is able to build a return, first in the short term, but in the longer term, an even improved return. And of course, you know, many of these areas are are fantastic opportunities for investment. First of all, environmentally, you know, the honest truth is in an overcrowded Southeast uh, where, you know, traveling vast distances to get to work, uh, when you start to put that into the equation of how human beings react, work, and improve their productivity. Many of the towns uh, in, the, in the, up, up in the Midlands and in the North and even in the West Country are better environments for business to work. Uh, they need, when I say leverage, for example, they need investment into things like airports and uh, communications, very good, super fast broadband, also uh, links on road and rail. These are the things that government can do, but beyond that, once that's beginning, then many businesses will say, well, We'd rather be here than uh, uh, sitting locked into a difficult urban environment in the southeast. We'd rather have our investments up here because the workforce uh, being reskilled, etc., makes it a very viable option. But this is what I mean by leverage spending. It's not about PPE, uh, PPI, rather, and uh, uh, those other issues. It's all about getting people to recognise the value uh, of the return on their investment, which is critical. And at the moment, we have a lot to do, but that will leverage huge amounts of money into these areas.
2: On that subject of our our overcrowded towns and cities, the government's putting forward plans to relax planning rules so that more houses can be built in the countryside. Now, Teresa Villas, uh, an MP near to you, says that this could do grave harm to our environment. What's your thoughts on that?
1: Well, this is the one area that I'm absolutely uh, concerned about in the Queen's speech, and there's a number of us very concerned. Uh, We've already got uh, an overcrowded London. Uh, and our real problem here is the idea that we're going to uh, start uh, throwing up all sorts of buildings willy-nilly, regardless of local concerns, uh, I think is going to move us in, in the wrong direction. So I think what you're going to find, of all the areas that are in the Queen's Speech, this is the area that is going to be debated fiercely. Um, and, uh, and I have to say the government needs to listen very carefully uh, to its own MPs about their concerns regarding the nature of these reforms. Yes, we need more houses, but the question really is uh, where do we need them and how are they to be rather than the kind of willy-nilly idea where you end up with large tower blocks in areas which are very residential, uh, of family homes, etc. This this won't work, so this is the one area I think Theresa's right we're going to have to look very, very carefully at.
3: Hmm. Uh, we mentioned at the start of our conversation the recent success of the Conservative Party Mm. in in local and regional elections and so on, for all of the success and this huge Mm. legislative agenda that the government's going to have now what is the point, I ask you if if Boris Johnson presides over the breakup of the UK I I mentioned this in regard to Scotland can your party the Tory party refuse an Indy Ref 2 should should, uh, Sturgeon ask for one
1: well, that, that's something uh, clearly going to be in the future, but certainly constitutionally it, it is uh, exactly the point. Uh, the government can, and uh, the government has the final say over whether referendum should take place in the UK, uh, but I suspect the truth is these things will be done by perception and by um, discussion and negotiation. What is an absolute fact at the moment is that the Scottish Nationalists did not win their outright majority that they were after, which they say yeah. would have given them the to do that. It's interesting to look at where the pound has gone internationally. Yeah. The pound has risen. Why has it risen on those results? It's because uh, overseas investors have looked at this and said, ah, OK, then it's yeah. not cut and dried. And therefore, it's unlikely there'll be a referendum, yeah. at least for some time. And I think that's the truth of it. And so I think the honest truth yes. here is that, that we don't need or want a referendum right now.
0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Now let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics.
2: We begin with the easing of lockdown as Nicola Sturgeon is today expected to follow England in easing restrictions in Scotland from next week. Yesterday, the government said that people in England will be able to enjoy a drink or a meal indoors, hug loved ones and return to gym classes from next Monday.
3: Yeah, Enormous cheer for that. Uh, This is the government moves ahead with the next stage of easing lockdown amid a consistent fall in COVID cases. We heard just today that there have been none, no deaths from COVID in the past 24 hours in England. The Prime Minister says that we no longer have to socially distance from people that we meet up with, but that we should remain vigilant.
1: We only have to look at the very sad situation in other countries to see the lethal potential still of this virus. And we must continue to fight the spread of variants here in the UK.
3: Now, Monday will also include the restart of international travel to countries on the government's approved green list.
2: Yeah, former Defence Minister Johnny Mercer is appearing before the Defence Committee today to discuss the job that he quit in protest last month. His appearance comes as the Times reports that ministers will resume talks this week with the Irish about hope of ending prosecutions over the Troubles. And if that's not enough, police boss Met Police boss Cressida Dick is in front of the Home Affairs Committee as well today to discuss the bungled police response to the vigils following the murder of Sarah Everett.
3: Meanwhile, unity appears to have broken out between Labour's Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner. Starmer last night retweeted a Guardian article penned by his deputy, which lamented that Labour had for too long been distant from the people that we are here to represent. Rayner said that Labour would invest tens of billions of pounds in green industries to boost jobs in areas where manufacturing has declined. This is part of her new brief on the future of work.
2: And ending on a fun note, while the Queen is in Westminster today, an MP is being held hostage at Buckingham Palace. It's all part of a ceremonial tradition meant to ensure the safe return of Her Majesty. Conservative MP Marcus Jones is the lucky camper this year, who we will only presume he's enjoying cucumber sandwiches while at the Royal Palace. Oh,
3: very good. So that uh, is all the news in brief for you. Lex Greensill, though, is also going to be speaking publicly today for the first time since the collapse of his... Lending firm in March. He is also giving evidence to the Treasury Select Committee. MPs are probing the failure of Greensill Capital and lobbying related to the firm. His evidence session comes two days before David Cameron is questioned by the committee amid allegations of cronyism at the top of government. Well, I'm pleased to say joining us now is John Gurlis, who is Public Relations and Policy Manager at the Chartered Institute of Public Relations. John, great to have you. On the program, so look just first of all Lex Greensill, uh, we've read a lot about him this is the first opportunity that um, perhaps many people will have to see him and he's going to be grilled by MPs. What do you think they want they're going to want to know from him?
4: well the interesting thing that I assume that Lex Greenhill will be talking about is the fact that his company and David Cameron Uh, and their relationship broke no code of conduct and no no government rules. Um, So there was no legislation broken. And and by that, he's correct. Um, We might not like what happened. Um, We don't believe uh, that policy decision-making should happen via personal contact over a mobile phone. But quite frankly, the rules that are in place um, are not fit for purpose. And these rules, ironically, were introduced by David Cameron himself In 2014 with the Lobbying Act and what that means is only a small percentage of lobbying that happens uh, in the UK is required to be registered. What that means is huge numbers of uh, lobbying activity has just gone under the radar Um, and this particular case uh, it was but for the good journalism that we we would have otherwise not found out about it. So what we're calling for at the CIPR is a widening of that legislation uh, and the, the the very clear need, which you know reflects public research, um, which shows that the you know the public really needs to know and wants to know exactly what their taxpayer money is being used for and how decisions are being made.
2: John, was the problem with uh, how David Cameron went about this? Was it something to do with uh, the way he did the lobbying? It wasn't a formal request for a meeting with the Chancellor, but it was all through uh, text messages and informal drinks. Is is that the key the key problem here?
4: That's certainly one of the problems, absolutely is is the fact that you know personal contact books should not be used to to drive policy. um now, lobbying is an important part of our democratic process. It gives many voices the opportunity to get in front uh, and to be heard by policy decision makers at the very top, and that's a hugely important role that they play uh, because they can often have a voice but underrepresented. Uh, communities or they can represent businesses and organisations and that's hugely important that they have that opportunity to have their voice heard. What we expect is for ministers and for governments to make decisions based on those conversations and and in the public interest. What we don't want to see is personal contact books being opened, access being granted to individuals because of who they know um, and decisions made Frankly, because uh, you know, because of someone's um, previous relationship. Now, obviously, in this case, you know that that didn't necessarily happen, um, and and some will argue that the system works. But what we don't know is, you know, how many other of these kinds mm. of interactions have there been, uh, and and whether or not actually the public interest was met um, by the decisions that are being made. And I think you're absolutely right that that is a really big issue. And, and what we really are calling for is a lobbying register to be widened so that all mm. activity um is, is registered so that we know who's been speaking to who, why certain decisions are made, and that we can then have trust in the public, policy decision making process um so that we can we can be clear about uh, the about, about why and how these decisions were made. And and frankly okay. in this particular occasion it wasn't.
3: Well, uh, no, interesting that you're calling for all lobbyists to be registered. I mean, how would you capture all lobbying in that way? Is that possible? And and I would put it to you this. I mean, surely a contacts book, that is what people are being hired for, isn't it, when they are being hired to, to lobby um, in sort of high-profile situations? It is those contacts that people are being hired for, isn't it? Uh,
4: well, it shouldn't be. A lobbyist does, does a lot more than just simply... Uh, have access to a contact book and, and you know, the meetings, if you like, that sort of last point of contact is, is a small part of what a lobbyist does. A lobbyist will, will you know look at uh, doing research. They will be um, making sure that they have the best evidence to present. They will be working out exactly who to contact and at what time and what other groups they need to contact. So a small part of, of, of lobbying might be... Um, you know, exactly who, um, who who we need to contact and when. But actually, you know, we live in a parliamentary democracy in this country, and we do have fantastic access to our uh, our MPs and and also to ministers via them through our, our local MPs or through uh, the ministries that we you know we have and we, we know where to go to. So there's no real need nowadays for those contact books to necessarily be used in this way. And and again, I'll come back to the point that it doesn't necessarily meet that kind of public interest challenge where decisions being made again not. Um, not with the evidence that's being presented from, from different stakeholder groups, which is important, but actually based on, you know, individual uh, relationships. And, and again, that's not right. So in answer to your first point, it's actually not particularly difficult um, to, to capture all this. Right now we have a lobbying register, which needs uh, requires consultant lobbyists only to register. So these are third-party consultant groups that work for organisations that are hired by them and that do the lobbying for them. And as I say, that's a very small amount of... Lobbying activity. Others have said that, you know, around eighty percent of lobbying activity is sort of unheard of. Um, because of that, what we are calling for is a register of lobbying activity, as opposed to a register of lobbyists. Um, there are requirements at the moment to have minister diaries published, though no, those aren't published particularly regularly or in time, and even those that are published don't contain much information. So we're not calling for a particularly uh, controversial or significantly challenging. Um, legislative changes here. We're calling for things that exist to be done better. And that, that happens in other countries all around the world already. So um, we can point to many examples where that works.
2: The former ministers are banned from engaging in lobbying for a period of two years after leaving office. Is that is that long enough? Is there too much of a revolving door between public and, and, and private spaces? That's certainly an issue. And no no
4: one who is um, who is currently working uh, as a legislator should be working as a lobbyist as well. The two-year period does seem fairly short, and there's certainly been calls from the likes of Gordon Brown to extend that to five years. We would welcome a review into that. It does feel, again, that perhaps um, hires are made based on on those uh, on those sort of relationships. And as I as I said earlier, actually, the role of, the, of a lobbyist now is. is um, you know, partly to have those conversations, but actually, there's a lot more. Um, you know, to, to, to what a lobbyist does and, and should do, uh, and so mm. it, it doesn't feel particularly right um, that 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 sort of relationship between leaving office and going into lobbying um, exists. And, and what we don't want to see, of course, is a situation where people see yeah. um, you know a gateway, if you like, to the private sector from uh, their position. Uh, as, as simply a good way to sort of um, progress one's career. We want people to go into public service for for the right reasons, uh, not for the fact that mm-hmm. when they come out of it, there's a there's a healthy paycheck at the other end.
3: Do you think that this is a symptom of Tory government accusations of cronyism and lobbying? Is it the age of the government that is important? Is it simply that the ethics rules for former ministers need to be much tighter, as a, a John Major, Sir John Major, has suggested?
4: yeah this this isn't this isn't a party political issue. this covers um this this what we're calling for is legislative change to to come into play that that would impact any government of any party. Um, it's about making sure that the public have got access so that we simply know who um how and why uh, people are having conversations with our elected um officials. To make sure that the public are getting the best interest in, uh, in an understanding so, how the policy is made. It, it doesn't matter who is doing that, everyone yeah. should be able to be lobbying transparently, uh, ethically, and properly.
2: Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.